If there ever was a food that most people think of as an emblem of the South, it is fried chicken. Dunked in buttermilk, shaken in a brown paper bag with flour and seasonings, and dropped into hot oil. But there's a flip side to the fried goodness, the comfort food. Here's this food that is, first of all, eaten with the hands, right? And so right away, there's this notion of savagery, of uh, less than refinement. Now it's like, look at these barbarians, you know. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. So today, fried chicken, an iconic food, one that has been used to signify the South and to degrade a whole demographic of people. But for many African-American families, it's also created a path to economic independence. Lauren Ober brings us today's story, which ponders how a dish can embody such contrasts, both empowerment and discrimination. It's a scorching afternoon at the Gordonsville, Virginia fairgrounds. The teenage cloggers on the stage look a little listless as they hoof it in the heat. And the homemade ice cream vendor has no trouble selling his product. Inside Vincent Seal's mobile kitchen, it's easily 10 degrees hotter. That's not just because it's a steel box on wheels. It's mainly because Seal's wife, Stephanie Terrell, has been frying up her chicken since early that morning. Seal is sweating and is covered in batter. It's on his apron. It's wringing his neck. I even spot some flecks of it in his eyebrows. This is a secret recipe here. It's a dry batter. Seal tells me that means there's no egg wash and no buttermilk, which might sound unusual to some fried chicken connoisseurs. But it's traditional here in Gordonsville. We take the chicken straight out of the pack, batter it, put it in the fryer. Okay. okay. We put all our secret, secret spices. As you see, I think people are enjoying it. Yeah, you got a line. That's a good thing. Seal and Terrell are competing in the annual Gordonsville Fried Chicken Festival's Fried Chicken Cook-Off. Terrell's closely guarded recipe won the competition the past two years, and they have every intention of making this year a three-peat. Their main rival? A well-oiled machine called the Barbecue Exchange. They're a restaurant and catering outfit in Gordonsville that focuses on pig, but a few times a year they pull out the deep fat fryer and fry up some fowl. I try to get the scoop from manager Todd Grieger. So what is the secret to this particular fried chicken? Um, there's two secrets. The first secret is making sure that it's cooked, and the second secret is not telling other people your secrets. Come on, give me a little something. Um, Pork lard and good-looking men. There you go. Pork lard and good-looking men. That's all? That's better, right? Okay, that's good. Stephanie Terrell might not entirely agree with that assessment. She's part of the town's vibrant African-American community and has been frying chicken since she was 12. Her mother cooked for years at a boarding school in the area and taught her daughter how to make all the staples. In a way, Terrell's iteration is an homage to her mother and the honored place fried chicken had at their family table. We used to have it every Sunday, Sunday meal, uh, fried chicken, string beans, macaroni and cheese. That was every Sunday meal. I just like chicken. It's my favorite. Seal knew his wife had the cooking chops to enter the fried chicken festival cook-off. Plus, as longtime residents of Gordonsville, they felt like they might have a special advantage. Stephanie has always cooked, and Gordonsville has a heritage of, you know, chicken history. 
so we just thought that would be a good thing for us to do and we beat around the bushes and found some good recipes here from Gordonsville, some of the elders, you know, and it, it's worked out. So it's not just that Stephanie Terrell is a good home cook, it's that she comes from a long line of Gordonsville women who made fried chicken for a living. During the Civil War, the town of Gordonsville was jumping. Its current mayor, Bob Coiner, says at the time, the town was a main stop on two train lines, the East-West Virginia Central and the North-South Orange and Alexandria. And it had three new turnpikes, making it a regional transportation hub. So all the produce in the western part of Virginia came on the turnpikes by wagon to Gordonsville to get on the trains to then go to eastern ports and cities and whatnot. So it was very important. Now, imagine that the Civil War has just ended and you're on a packed train that's rumbling through central Virginia. It's sticky and hot and the windows are down to let in some air. Your stomach is grumbling and the trains don't yet have dining cars. You approach the Gordonsville station on your way to Charlottesville or Richmond and a smell, a good smell, hits you square in the nose. It's the unmistakable aroma of fried chicken. You look out the window and you see half a dozen black women, some with platters on their heads, rushing the train windows. On the platters are fried fruit pies, hot coffee, and of course that fried chicken you smelled earlier. They hold up their platters to the open train windows so passengers can grab some food. You hand down some money and then snag a golden brown leg. It's perfect. Crispy on the outside, juicy on the inside. You also grab a fried pie for dessert and a coffee to wash it all down. Then the train whistle blows, the women step back off the platform, and you're headed to the next stop. These women were the waiter carriers. This is what they call themselves. That's Psyche Williams-Forsen. She's a professor of American studies at the University of Maryland. They found themselves both as the sort of modern-day waiter, right? But then they also carried these foods, right? Um, Some distance, probably. Williams-Forsen is the author of Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power. The title of her book comes from an article written by a third-generation waiter carrier who explained that her mother had built her house out of chicken legs, or rather that these women used food, and fried chicken in particular, as a way to make a living for themselves and their families. Mayor Coiner, whose family goes back many generations in Gordonsville, says that degree of financial independence was rare post-emancipation. At the end of the Civil War, when we've got new freedoms for people, they're put in a position where suddenly they need jobs. Uh, You know, the situation was bad before, but you could count on the situation. And that was a big unknown. So, you know, the the ladies, these entrepreneurs, that did this wonderful cooking and raised money for their families and built homes. They have such admiration. It's not just talking about how great the chicken was and how great the food was. They're so admired for their courage and their entrepreneurship. It was really a remarkable story. The waiter carrier's earning potential was only restricted by their platter capacity. As much as they could make and carry, they could sell. Unlike many of their husbands who worked on farms, their wages weren't fixed. For her book, Professor Williams Forson combed through old newspaper articles and other historical documents to find detailed histories of these women. But it was tough. There just aren't many records left that illustrate what these women's lives were like. 
The question becomes how many trains did they serve during a day? What time did they have to get there? And what time did they leave? How far did they come? How did they keep the foods, you know, warm? The, the coffee was steaming hot. You almost have your modern day food truck in these, in these women. But what is known is that the waiter carriers and their fried chicken were sought after. Some people deliberately would chart their way through Gordonsville because they knew that they would encounter these women and, and those particular foodstuffs. After the Civil War, Northern journalists traveled the South by train on goodwill tours. They documented their trip through Gordonsville in an 1873 book called The Pine and the Palm Meeting. Here's how they described their visit to the town. Upon the arrival of our special train, we were surrounded with a swarm of old and young Negroes of both sexes, carrying large servers upon their heads containing pies, cakes, chickens, boiled eggs, strawberries and cream, ripe cherries, oranges, tea and coffee, biscuit, sandwiches, fried ham and eggs, and other edibles, which they offered for sale. Years later, another journalist from a Richmond newspaper praised the fried chicken, writing, There was never such a place as Gordonsville. There were never better cooks. It is a fact that nowhere else on earth is chicken fried as it is here. It is an art. Each time they would come through Gordonsville, because Gordonsville is kind of a central railroad hub, they just went on and on about these ladies and the food in Gordonsville. The Gordonsville waiter carriers weren't the only black women who created homegrown business opportunities for themselves. Williams Forson found evidence that before and after the Civil War and emancipation, black women would sell produce and meat in local marketplaces. Some of these women used the proceeds to buy their own freedom. It's mind-boggling to think about now, given what we know or think we know about slavery and its devastating effects, that enslaved women were able to finance their own purchase by selling food they made. Or, in the case of waiter carriers, whose heyday came after the Civil War, that free women could support their families on the skills that they had honed while in bondage. I think it's important to talk about it because it reflects some level of agency that some African Americans were able to exhibit during that, that horrible institution. The waiter carriers in Gordonsville continued selling fried chicken to incoming trains until the 1920s or 30s. No one's exactly sure when they quit. But their disappearance was a result of a number of factors. The main one? Air conditioning. AC on the train meant that the windows stayed shut, and the women couldn't sell their chicken if they couldn't get to the passengers. Plus, trains began to have their own dining cars, and increased regulation of restaurants and food vendors meant that health inspectors were on the prowl, and they were known to hassle the women on the platform. But the decline of the waiter carrier isn't the end of the story. Some of those women used their profits to start their own restaurants or catering businesses. And they were in good company. There's a long legacy of black women using food as a way to get ahead. Coming up, we meet one African-American cook who's doing so today in New York City. And we dig into the versions of the South that have been sold to Northerners. That's ahead. There is that sponsorship music. And today I want to tell you a little story about an old dry cleaner's storefront on Claremont Avenue in Birmingham, Alabama. That's what Nick Pahakis and his dad, Jim, bought in 1985. And it's where they started cooking pork low and slow, as they say. 
That dry cleaners became the first Jim and Nick's community barbecue. Today, they've got 33 restaurants in seven states, and they take the community in their name seriously. They've supported the work of the Southern Foodways Alliance for more than a decade. They support regional production in the south of heritage breeds of pigs and the ranchers who raise them. So Jim and Nick's is about a lot more than barbecue. Though, of course, it's also definitely about the barbecue. You can learn more at jimandnicks.com. And now back to Lauren Ober. Melba Wilson is totally larger than life. When I told the 40-something owner of Melba's restaurant in Harlem that I was producing a story for a podcast called Gravy, this was her response. I love gravy. I make smothered pork chops with gravy. I also make smothered chicken with gravy. In case it wasn't obvious, Wilson is really into food. Food and I, we're lovers. (laughs) You know, it's a very personal relationship with food. One type of food that Wilson is very intimate with is what some would call soul food. She's staked her career on it. The signature dish on her menu is fried chicken and eggnog waffles. Like Stephanie Terrell in Gordonsville, she comes from a family of talented cooks. Wilson is the niece of the late Sylvia Woods, the soul food magnate whose eponymous restaurant is a short walk from Melba's in New York. Woods was originally from the PD region of South Carolina and moved north to open a restaurant catering to the southern blacks who had landed in Harlem as a part of the Great Migration. By the 1920s, more than 200,000 black people lived in Harlem. Before the Great Migration, it was a predominantly white neighborhood. It was Woods who gave Wilson her first restaurant job. You know, I was the hostess. I was the assistant catering director. I was the cashier. I pretty much did whatever my aunt needed done. If she asked me to do it, you did it. And, and that's how it was in the South, you know. They came up from the old South. So when they told you to do, to do something, you said, yes, ma'am, and you did it. Wilson worked for her aunt for 11 years before striking out on her own. Her restaurant is less explicitly soul food. While Sylvia's menu features Southern classics like oxtails, chitlins, and barbecue ribs, Melba's offerings tend to depart from traditional preparations. Wine-braised short ribs, barbecue turkey meatloaf, and three-cheese mac and cheese. Still, Melba says she tries to honor her Southern roots. It's food that was originally slave food. You know, the collard greens were the bitterest of the greens. The ribs were parts of the meat that people didn't want. The grits was food that would hold you over while you were working on the plantation. But it's also food that evokes warm memories. Sometimes, though, the emotions Southern food evokes aren't based on memories. Instead, they reference nostalgia for a romanticized South, a mythologized South where life moved at a slower pace and modernity hadn't yet crept in and all Black women could cook. Professor Psyche Williams-Forson says this is problematic because this thinking reinforces stereotypical images of what Southern food is and who makes it. People do what they're good at and also what the public expects of them because food is so powerful in its marking of things and messages and in in its coding of messages that we tend to associate certain people with certain foods. Black women get associated with soul food. A black woman frying chicken any day of the week is going to garner more money 
if there's money to be made than a non-African American woman cooking chicken because of the idea that she knows how to cook better. All that was useful for the waiter carriers 100 plus years ago. They were businesswomen selling a product, and it's useful for Melba Wilson today. Those stories and that food have helped put money in their pockets. With proceeds, they have supported themselves and their families. And in a country where African Americans have historically been denied economic opportunities, earning your own living is no small feat. But most food, and fried chicken in particular, comes with coded messages. Fried chicken and watermelon are consumed by everyone. But if I eat it as a white person, it doesn't say much about me. If a black person eats it, it can telegraph something else. Here's this food that is, first of all, eaten with the hands, right? And so right away, there's this notion of savagery, of uh, less than refinement, um, and so forth. And so if we can continue over time to literally associate black people or any group of people with this thing, then they can become that thing in some ways, right? And so over and over, it gets reinforced, um, and so it becomes naturalized. Uh, why is that a negative? Because now it's like, look at these barbarians, you know. Williams Forsen says that's the reason why many African-American men won't eat fried chicken in public. That's also the reason MSNBC host Melissa Harris-Perry won't allow watermelon in her green room fruit platter. It's not because those foods aren't appetizing. It's the optics of eating them. Southern food is rich in racial paradoxes. During the Jim Crow era, many white families employed black cooks who fried chicken for family dinners. Often those black cooks slept in white homes. But in public, whites wouldn't share a water fountain with blacks. In private, though, they'd happily eat the food they made. These women are in a subservient role. They're in the service industry, right? Just like today, we tend very rarely to think about the people who are serving us in our upscale or regular scale restaurants. We give no credence really or thought to who's in the back of the house. Like Psyche Williams Forsen, Karen Cox has spent a lot of time thinking about these intersections and complications. She's a history professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and the author of Dreaming of Dixie, How the South Was Created in American Popular Culture. The book is an examination of how the South has been packaged over the years to sell to the North and beyond. All these different industries that were shaping a narrative and an image of the American South that really drew my interest. It isn't that Southerners didn't also have an interest in shaping an image of the Old South as a mythology. Things like the Southern Belle and the Cavalier Gentleman and, you know, Annabelle and Mansions at the White Columns and the Mammies and, you know, Faithful Slaves and all of that. So that was certainly part of, you know, the Lost Cause narrative among Southerners. But it, what was interesting to me was why was it that these Northern industries were also playing up that narrative to sell products. The most recognizable Southern image used to sell products up north and around the country? Aunt Jemima. Cox explains that this non-threatening, asexual mammy figure in a headscarf and an apron wasn't born in a tumble-down cabin on a Louisiana plantation. 
She was manufactured on Madison Avenue. Have you got a tempt to late and tantalize an old plantation saying for us today, Aunt Jemima? Yes, sir. One that's especially good these days is that folks who smiles at breakfast mostly don't never need no doctor. This idea of a black population that was subservient or seemed to be content in the role of that, I think was attractive. That's why Aunt Jemima was popular. You know, so there's been commentary, you know, by whites in the North that somehow that, that Southern blacks are the better blacks because they know how to be deferential. Aunt Jemima became an aspirational symbol for white consumers. If you had money, you could afford to hire a domestic to do the cooking for you. And Aunt Jemima seems so damn happy to be in service that any guilt a white person might have felt was quickly melted by her toothy ear-to-ear smile. Cox has a million examples of how the South was prettied up to sell, and not all of them are historical. They're still happening now. Glory Foods is a company that makes canned Southern food. It was founded by one of the first black graduates of the Culinary Institute of America, though in 2010 it was sold to a white-owned family business. A couple of years ago, they ran this ad in television markets in the South. I don't want to eat my vegetables. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to! Yeah! Yuck! Uh Uh-uh! Stop all this drama for your mama. You need some flavor. You need some glory in your life. Then the African-American woman pops open a family-sized can of string beans, dumps them in a saucepan, and gets to stirring. The kids shut up, the white lady is happy, and dinner is saved. Much better. It was awful. I just couldn't believe that they thought that that would fly. Yeah, so that's like this modern, I mean, super recent take on using black women. It was like... Like, did you all see the help and then decide to do this? Cox wrote about this on her blog, Pop South. She says shortly after her blog post went up and after she reached out to the agency that made the commercials, the ads were taken down from YouTube. It seems like everyone is hawking some version of the South, whether it's the memory of certain comfort foods or the nostalgia of servitude and domesticity, The South is still a commodity to be marketed and sold. But here's the thing. For folks like Melba Wilson, who make their living off of food, that's just fine. There's not a whole lot of fussing over whether there's anything wrong with selling the food you're good at making. I asked her whether she might be advancing a caricature of black women by cooking the food that she does. There was never a consideration that I might be playing into a stereotype in making American comfort food What I wanted to do was to show that we can all come together and enjoy our food together. Because ultimately, it's about bridging gaps. Lots of academically grounded discussions focus on fried chicken and the folks who make it. But one thing that can't be denied is the sense of pride and purpose that people, and in this case, black women, have in the food they make. Stereotypes be damned. Lauren Ober is a reporter at WAMU in Washington, D.C. You can find a link to Psyche Williams-Forson's book, Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power, and to Karen Cox's book, Dreaming of Dixie, How the South Was Created in American Popular Culture. Those are both on our website, southernfoodways.org. 
Music for this episode was by Ryan Little, Blue Dot Sessions, Digital Primitives, David Schulman, and Quiet Life Motel, and Diagram Collective. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Coming up, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... If you want more revelations about the confluence of food and race relations, do I have a book for you. To Live and Dine in Dixie, The Evolution of Urban Food Culture in the Jim Crow South. It's by Jill Cooley, who was a postdoctoral fellow with the Southern Foodways Alliance. In conjunction with the SFA, the University of Georgia Press just published her book. It delves into the history of public eating in the South and the legal and social campaigns fought to make sure everyone got a seat at the table. For example, Jill goes into how city directories and telephone books used racial coding in restaurant listings, and the subtle clues fast food chains used to show preference to white customers. It is a fascinating read. You can learn more on the SFA's website, southernfoodways.org. Coming up on Gravy, a dinner party from just after the Civil War that still resonates today. Charleston is the place that drove secession that in Charleston, at the end of the war, there was someone who was looking forward to a future of harmony and civility, uh, reconciliation. There's a certain appositeness to that. That's just right. That's coming up. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to Gravy on iTunes. While you're there, will you write us a review? I'd love to boost the number of folks finding us on iTunes, and that is a surefire way to do it. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily lives, please remember, make cornbread, not war.